Forbes reports that 97% of employees do not want to return to the office full-time, and 61% say they want full-time remote working. It seems that large offices may become the ghost estates of the 2020s. My name is Stephen Norton and you are very welcome to the Good Boss Bad Boss podcast episode 26. I hope you're keeping well as the world slowly emerges from the worst of the lockdowns. It's not over yet but we are starting to see brighter days ahead. This episode is a little later than usual but it's been a crazy busy month on the Zoomiverse and I have to prioritise my clients' needs. My guest this month is somebody I've been lucky enough to know for a number of years now. Kevin Keegan is a HR leader with 25 years experience across a number of really high profile organisations. His CV spans sectors including finance, pharma, telecoms and food production. He's a former chairman of Make-A-Wish Ireland and a former director of the Simon Communities of Ireland. I studied with Kevin in the Irish Management Institute and I've been blessed with his advice and guidance as a mentor ever since. Since I set up my own business, I've had regular check-ins with Kevin and I've really benefited from his friendship and mentorship. He has a passion for developing talent and a keen business focus that I have found extremely valuable. I was chatting to Kevin recently about his relatively new appointment as a partner with Boyden. Boyden's team in Ireland provide three distinct service lines in executive search, interim management and leadership consulting. It was the executive search topic that piqued my interest as I've always wondered how the world of headhunting works and I thought you might too. So for one of our regular chats, I turned on the microphones. I hope you enjoy episode 26. Kevin Keegan, you are very welcome to the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast, episode 26. Thanks, Stephen. It's a pleasure to join you. So you are a partner at Boyden who uh, specialize in three very distinct things. The first one is executive search, which we know is headhunting. The second one is interim management, which I would describe as as getting people out of shit. Uh, and the last one is leadership consulting, which is all about guiding people uh, in leadership, which is something that you know that I'm very passionate about as well. You also have a BA in psychology, you have an MSc in work and organisational psychology, a master's in business, as well as a banking director's project management and employment law qualifications. My question to you is, can you cook though? <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny, you don't really think about all those things uh, uh, or take the time as a as a leader or as a person to reflect on some of those things. Uh, no, unfortunately, uh, I probably can't cook to the level that I'd like to, but uh, I don't have time for the courses that might uh, lift my <laughs> cooking up to the next level. So now that we know that you're not going to be a cook in the future, bring, bring us back to to what you did want to be. You know, where where did it all start for Kevin Keegan and how did he get to, to be a partner in Boyden at the end of the day? Because you've, you've over 25 years experience in, in uh, HR, uh, just for one thing, uh, as among others. Yeah, so um, I thought you were going to ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up, right? Um, <laughs> but in essence, um, I'm on my third career, if you will. I started, um, uh, so after I did a degree in psychology in UCD, and then I did a master's because I in organizational psychology, um, which is very close to the HR discipline. Um, and for me, that was because I, my family are in business. I'm a shopkeeper's son from Tullamore County, Offaly. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something in uh, in business uh, and business with people, um, and that was a, that was a logical transition. Um, I 
graduated um, from uh, UCD and then DCU at a time when the careers and appointments office was called tears and disappointments. Uh, maybe not officially, but it felt like it because unemployment was very high. But I I was very lucky. I had done an internship with uh, Guinness and Sales and Marking, but I'd managed to secure a um, an apprenticeship, for want of a better expression, um, as a trainee a psychologist with a firm called PCS and Dorky, and a guy called Jimmy Fisher. And he had a, a, a he he had a boutique. He still has a boutique um, occupational psychology firm. Um, and I went in as a trainee, as a bag carrier in 1995. Um, and I worked with Jimmy for um, close on six years, um, doing things like um, psychometrics for selecting and uh, for assessing and selecting people. We would assess people to join Apple. Um, Apple were scaling up in Ireland at the time, uh, ran development centers for Pepsi um, for helping people develop their careers. I did a lot of career planning and development planning, but I've done some individual coaching work and, and had the privilege of, as a as a young um, a young professional, um, working in in an area that maybe HR professionals only get to work in a little bit later in their career, right. um, partially because of training and partially just some circumstances and just uh, Jimmy giving me an opportunity and I'll be forever in his debt as a result of that. Um, my career then went uh, kind of changed a little. I was uh, when I was working for Jimmy and PCS. I had the ability to build relationships with clients, um, which meant I was quite good on the, I suppose, uh, the business development side. One client that I managed to bring into the firm at the time was Kerry Group, um, and uh, I worked uh, in house with. Effectively, what happened was I brought Kerry into PCS, and then Kerry Group, the group had a HR development asked me to come and join Kerry. Right. as a result of that exposure. And I went in and I looked after Kerry's graduate program uh, for a while. And then I looked after um, management development for Kerry in Europe. Um, and then I got an interim job as the um, VP of HR for Kerry in America. And I was quite young at the time. I was about 32, 33. Can, like um, that, that's a big move going from a boutique you know a small firm dealing with big fish but still yeah. you know there's a certain uh you're you're very close to the top uh when you were with jimmy and next thing hey come and work in carry and that is a, a monster in the best sense of the word it's just huge you know and there's great opportunity but it is huge how did that feel switching from from uh uh you know uh the the, the specialist sniper role to this big big army yeah, um, it it was it was a big transition, and it was a it was quite hard for me, I think, in the first year. Um, so one of the privileges you have if you're in any sort of consulting role is your opinion carries a lot of weight. Yeah, um, and you you have an, uh, an ability to have an impact because people have already come to you for their advice. Whereas if you move into uh, um, a firm a you're doing far more admin and you're doing a lot of planning and organizing administration and project management some of those skills were new to me mm. um, and b you have to manage uh, the realities of organization political life you have this massive expectation on your shoulders that you know you were a consultant and you were a psychologist and you should be able to turn water into wine and make all this stuff happen um yeah and it's only actually when you stand back and, and give yourself a break and reflect on it and uh, say, okay, this this is different. The rules are different. 
I need to play a different game here um, and I need to learn what that game is. Um, so there's that transition to make. There's obviously the transition of scale. Um, so it definitely took me a year to, to adjust. Um, uh, but thankfully, I did adjust. And, uh, you know, I, I had the privilege with Kerry of um, helping hire and shape Kerry's leaders of the future. Mm. Um, at that stage, and um, then to work with them to develop them in uh, in Europe to the next phase of the career, and then um, Kerry at the time was in, uh, was very interesting because it was very decentralized. So one level, you didn't have a real job unless you were out in the business. Yeah. Um, so it was only when I got out of head office and and went to America with them that you're almost feeling like you're in a real job, <laughs> uh, if you will, um, and. Um, you know, I always, I used to say to my friends that I ended up going to carry an American, they'd say where, and I'd say Chicago, but it wasn't really. It was a place called Beloit, Wisconsin, which is not the bright center of the world. Yeah. Uh, no disrespect. No disrespect to uh, people from Beloit and Wisconsin. Um, probably, it was like saying Monastery than as Dublin, actually, if I was being honest. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, but it was a phenomenal experience. And um if, Terry, if, if like, Ryanair flew to Chicago, they'd fly there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, um, and um, but look, even though it was uh, that was a big move and a big transition moving into Kerry, the opportunities that I got with Kerry, I mean, I I, um, I worked with them in uh, the US, and um, I worked with Stan McCarthy over in the US, and then I got the opportunity to move to Amsterdam with Kerry, subsequently, and. Uh, be the uh, global HR director for the bioscience division across 10 countries headquartered out of Amsterdam. So um, for a small town boy from Tullamore, there's there's sort of things of dreams actually at one level. Mm, Yeah, the shopkeeper's son was traveling. (laughs) Yeah. And so what was the next move after Kerry? Um, So after almost six years with Kerry, I went, I I wanted back to Ireland um, and um, when you get onto that sort of international circuit with Kerry, it's very hard to get back to Ireland because um, you go where the businesses are going. Um, mm. But I also wanted a bit of a change. Um, so I took the opportunity to join State Street as the VP of uh, HR and make that transition to financial services. Uh, mm. And uh, that, was an, that was another big transition. Um, and uh, one with a lot of learnings to it. State Street, very, very different. And I would have learned if, if in Kerry Group, you learn a lot of, I'm going to call it commercial HR, you got to understand the business very well. State Street would have been far better on processes and procedures at that stage. Um, so you, every career, every company, you, you will pick up nuggets of learning uh, and you, you know, certain things get imbued in your, um, I'm going to call it your sort of your career DNA. You pick yeah. up those things and you can bring, bring them into your own career DNA. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I went to State Street. Uh, I, that transition was an interesting one for me. Um, insofar as I, you know, with Gary, um, I was at a stage where it's probably one of the top four HR people in the organization at the time. You're, you know, you're you can pick up the phone to the deputy CEO, things like that. State Street, mm-hmm. I moved in, a big title, but you're actually far. Uh, you're far down the pecking order. Right. That's far more bu- bureaucratic. And I found that didn't suit my personality. Um, and also, it was a, it's a more administrative business, um, fund administration. So to me, that, that didn't suit me. I, t- I took a, um, the opportunity uh, 
Treasury Holdings at the time, which was a real estate development company mm. owned by Richard Barrett and Johnny Rohn. And I took the opportunity to go in as their group HR director, establish the function and bring um, professional uh, HR and talent management and capability uh, to Treasury Holdings at that stage. Um, and I helped Treasury scale and go into country like Russia and uh, scale their business in China um, and and uh, and take their business to heights. And then also, um, we were the um, we uh, we found a team that put planning permission into Battersea Power Station and do wow. things like that. And then, but ultimately, then I also had to be there for the difficult times. And when Treasury um, went into Nama, face off against Nama. And, I had to lay off um, a lot of people as part of that experience as well, um, and that you know there was uh, there was exciting times and and the good times, the Celtic Tiger times, and that. But the difficult times actually, um, I probably learned more. I mm. I think I, you and I have spoke before. I've used the matter of, of a HR, good HR person being a gardener, right? Mm. Um, and uh, you you have to be able to to plant. Um, you know, which are the good times and recruit and acquire talent. Um, but you also need to be able to prune and, you know, recognize when you've got to cut away dead wood and uh, so that the garden can flourish again. Yeah. Uh, and I think good, hey, I think you learn more in down cycles and in difficult situations and in adverse situations than you do necessarily on the up cycles. And like treasury wouldn't have been so big that you wouldn't have known pretty much everybody, you know, yeah, in, in, in from that point of view, like it's different to going through a redundancy program in State Street, you know, where you, you, you might know the names on the page, but in Treasury, you would have known the personalities involved as well. Um, yeah. So in the, unfortunately, one feature of my career has been, I've done a lot of, uh, done a lot of redundancy programs, uh, a lot of downsizing. In tre- Treasury, I had two businesses. I had its core development business. I would have known everybody very well in that. And then it, it would have had its, um, ancillary businesses, the more trading business, the business that is owned, and uh, I would have over overseen changes to those business. I wouldn't have known those people as well. Right, but yeah. all of the developers, the two hundred and fifty people that worked in the development business, I would have known them uh, all very well. Um, you know, would have known their partners, families, things like that, because that's just the nature of uh, that level of business. It's it's something that unfortunately some businesses are going through again because of the pandemic, you know, they, they will have to um, reorganize their business uh, in some cases. You know, thankfully, most businesses seem to be doing okay, but there definitely will be some um, industries that are hit by this. Just since you have had that experience, what, what do you think is the key to managing, you know, layoffs or redundancies? What do you think is the key to managing it successfully? I, I, first of all, I probably don't think that there's a core set of rules that work across every industry. I mean, there's maybe a number of principles that are important to consider. Um, I think if you can do something uh, in one swoop, it's better rather than death by thousand cuts. Okay, right. yeah. we, we we use metaphors here, and they're horrible metaphors. Um, but yeah, doing something once and doing it well, even if you have to cut deep, is better than death by thousand cuts because you've got to consider it like. Um, like the way a doctor operates, right? Mm. The purpose of doing it is to, um, usually is to remove costs from the business uh, so that the business can move forward. Very similar to a surgeon operating. 
Um, so a surgeon doesn't want to go, want to have to go in multiple times because the body needs to heal. So, you, you know, when you're doing something like this, first of all, people in, innately um, sense it. So, you know, things, the organization yeah. slows down, decisions slow down even before you make it. Um, so it's about, you know, making, deciding on it, deciding on a timeline, deciding to do it once, laying it out, really good planning and organizing and thinking it through. Mm-hmm. Um, then being as open and candid as you can be, right? And notice that I'm being very purposeful in my words, not open and candid, as open and candid as you can be, because there are, there are things that people will want to know, but they just can't, that you're just not in a position to share it. Yeah. But trying to be as authentic and as real as you can, um, do, you know, thinking it through, doing it quickly, um, and then working, you know, recognizing the organization will be, will be, uh, won't be at its 100%, um, but then very much concentrating on moving forward. Mm. Um, but there's a couple of other principles as well. How you let people go, because um, everyone's watching and they're, you know, so, you know, try not to be too um, what to pound, uh, penny wise and pound foolish around terms and conditions. If right. you can afford it, providing outplacement and support for people so that they've given great service to your organization, recognizing that and recognizing that you need to try and provide them support to move on and do something else with their lives. Mm-hmm. There are some of the principles. That, um, so, uh, you know, it's a lot of the things that you would expect from, uh, I think redundancy is a really good example of where um, leaders are forged uh, or fail. Actually. Right, yeah, yeah. And and so yeah, a traumatic time for the whole country back then. But um, you you would have seen it up front. What what did you do after Treasury? So you obviously moved on yourself at I that did, stage. Uh, um, I went into Green Corps as the Group HR Director, um, and I had the privilege of working with Patrick Coveney um, and um, scaling the business in America, buying unique foods, going. Very, very different experience to Green Corps because we were going on a lot of, uh, acquiring a lot of businesses and growing yeah. and growing Green Corps. Um, and then after Green Corps, I joined Ulster Bank and I was in, uh, I, and that was a very deliberate career strategy. I wanted to um, go into one of the uh, pillar banks. I wanted to um, have the opportunity to kind of uh, be part of that type of organization and yeah. particularly an organization that was in the condition that Ulster Bank was in when I joined, which it was in the middle of the banking crisis. Um, it was also Ulster had the double whammy of it had just had pre- the previous year, the IT incident. Yes. Uh, and yes. Uh, IT incidents are very much top at the moment, given the experience that Department of Health and HSC are having. Mm. Um, so it was, um, it was a bank where people were, bankers were all embarrassed to call themselves bankers back then yeah. um, they were just somewhere behind clampers in, in terms of uh, popularity I think yeah. um, and um, morale was very low and I was um, I I connected hugely with Jim Brown the CEO uh, from the very early days and this was a man that I felt I could work well with and uh, that I would have a special bond with and, and the leadership team and that we could help put that bank um, back uh, back on the right tracks and uh, take the, take it to the next level. And um, under Jim's leadership, we did. We returned the bank to profitability. We improved morale and engagement uh, in Ulster Bank and uh, would be something I'd be, uh, I'm proud to say I was part of. So 
two stints in financial services if you take State Street and Ulster Bank. So did you feel that yeah. was enough then? Was was that it for financial services for you? Um, well, we it was a very interesting period because Ulster was, uh, you know, at the time, RBS weren't so sure what they were going to do with us. Um, mm. And uh, we, we went ahead with writing the bank, uh, but ultimately Ulster were... Uh, RBS decided they wanted to split it, pull the Northern Ireland Bank into NatWest, Nat West, which they did, um, and then stand up the Republic of Ireland Bank. So after two, two and a half years of duking it out with the unions and, and managing all that sort of stuff, and Jim had moved on, yeah, it was enough for me in terms of financial services. Highly rewarding, yeah. um, personally very rewarding, um, and very in terms of the challenge and the achievements, uh, but time to go on and do something else. And of course, you were back in Ireland now, you know, for, for a number of years now. You, you, did you get itchy feet for that traveling again? Um, I I did, yeah. I mean, uh, I took a couple of months off just to uh, kind of find my bearings and uh, and that. And then I had I took an opportunity. I suppose I had, um, I had done a major transformation, uh, which is, I think, what a lot of uh, redundancy programs and restructures have been. Yeah. rebadged into in many ways now and that's not to say that all transformations involve downsizing or um but uh dennis o'brien was going needed to do a big transformation of digicel um, and uh, i went and worked with him and colin dads in uh where we, i moved myself my partner moved to jamaica um nice. and uh we uh which was a fascinating experience and uh, I went about planning with uh, Dennis and the leadership team, the transformation of Digicel. We had the privilege of working with McKinsey, putting in a new operating model, but also then unfortunately having to um, redesign how the bank, the, that redesign of how, the, of how Digicel operated uh, meant that we were also going to be letting people go. Um, right. And whatever by doing something like that in the first world country like Ireland, even during the financial crisis and, um, uh, doing it in uh, in countries that uh, Digicel serves is a very different proposition, mm. um, because it, um, it it has very strong implications in terms of um, so in its livelihood in Ireland, but it yeah. potentially life in those countries. Was yeah, so you like Amsterdam, Chicago, these places were are all very comfortable, but Jamaica is a different prospect and it was that whole region you were looking after there was there was lots of centers around the that region pa- and the south pacific as well so, right okay um uh, places like fiji and, and down the south pacific yeah 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 so it's a, a, another experience which which you found hard enough you know just a, a different yeah. experience but you, you learned from it as well yeah look that was a uh, that was fascinating i mean i think i visited eight or nine countries in uh, about 10 days. Uh, <laughs> it sounds great where you're on a private jet and et cetera, but you're going around with a very clear purpose, um, which is around understanding the business and figuring out what, what's going to be done differently. Um, and uh, and it was, we worked very, very hard. Uh, the team at the time, you know, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say there were times we were doing 100 hour weeks. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but we did, did put in a new operating model um, and, uh, you know, that was part of right-sizing uh, Digicel and uh, allowing uh, the, or- the organization to come to where it is now. 
And tell me, so we're, we're at Digicel. How did you get to, what, what was between there and Boyden now at this stage? We must be nearly up to date with, with yeah. where you are. Um, so I um, I took, after Digicel, I took the opportunity to take uh, a few months off. I traveled to uh, Southeast Asia with my partner and we just took, we just just took some time together and it was great to be able to do that. It was a privilege. Um, then came back to Ireland uh, set up my own uh, firm and just doing some uh, consulting, taking my 20 plus years of experience and uh, hawking that out and see who wanted to uh, to buy me, uh, to buy that. Um, I went in and did a, um, some intern work with a company called Shire, which then became Takeda. Uh, they were acquired by Takeda, um, helping out. Um, Shire had grown very quickly in Ireland and uh, maybe they just need to stand up some of their people practices the same level that it stood up the rest of the business. So I worked uh, with the leadership team to um, sort that out. Um, and um, I've been doing I've been doing my own consulting for um, for a couple of years. And then uh, Q3 of last year, uh, I ended up doing a project for Boyden, and they asked me to establish the uh, business in Ireland. The, uh, and I've it's been a privilege to, to effectively. I suppose be the forerunners for Boyden in Ireland mm. with uh, my colleague Morris Carr and Nick Robeson. So, a, a long and varied career. I mean, definitely you 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 have a what's the word? You definitely have a craving for something new every now and then, for something interesting every now and then. You don't shy away from a challenge. What do you think has changed in HR in that 25 years that you've been involved? And like I say, HR, but you've really been involved at a leadership level, um, you know, across a lot of businesses over the last 25 years. Yeah. Uh, um, I'd probably answer that by saying, first of all, maybe what's changed in business. Um, mm. And uh, I don't know what your list- listenership is like in terms of the various generations. And I, I get confused now if we're at X, Y, Z or millennials or, or whatever but um when i started working in pcs we didn't use email yeah yeah okay which nowadays is like you're you're shocked so uh, you know we we would fax things to people right yes, yeah um hr functions at the time were more called personnel um that's right if you will. yeah yeah um and now the, the sophisticated ones were the HR functions, right? There were very few HR directors in Ireland. There were HR managers, or there maybe there was the occasional head. Um, and uh, the, so, you know, if you think back 20 plus years, that's kind of, that's part of the journey we've been on. Um, and HR has got far more uh, sophisticated. Um, it's developed a whole, nom- a whole set of language around itself. Mm. Um, and the the function has evolved exponentially um, as the uh, as had the requirements for business from it. But at the at the essence of it, it's still about a function that is responsible for. I'm going to use the expression human capital, but it's responsible for the people, um, and it's recognizing that intrinsic to the firm being profitable or it's achieving mm-hmm. its mission for the non profit oriented firms that there is a human component and that people add value in that. And it's about somebody who um, is responsible and accountable for that and owns the processes and the practices and the systems to uh, protect that and to protect that human capital and those people. 
And do you think that HR leaders have a different view of leadership or, or a different view of a business perhaps than, than operational leaders? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Probably a bit of yes and a bit of no to it, right? Mm. Um, look, I think that at the top of every function, I don't necessarily mean, uh, I don't mean, I mean, I mean, the best of every function have uh, pretty much a shared view as to leadership. Okay. And um, I think you're, you know, you're, your best HR people understand their business as well as the best uh, operational business leaders, right? Yeah. Um, and I've seen some. I've seen some brilliant um, operational business leaders who are phenomenal people leaders. And um, yeah. the, I think HR are charged. And there's a sacred trust placed on them sometimes. Um, sometimes the burden of responsibility that they're meant to have this magic touch and ma this magic understanding of knowing what leaders is and other people poo-poo that and whatever. Um, but in essence, if um, if uh, if we say that this human capital has this value to it and it needs to be nurtured and protected and developed and maximised, um, you don't get that by just by good management. right? Mm. Yeah. You get hearts and minds and people follow leaders and you you choose to follow a leader mm -hmm. um, and maybe one area that uh, hr people probably push a bit harder or have an, a keener sense of awareness is the idea of distributed leadership and um, that leadership doesn't necessarily need to go with a title doesn't need to go with being at the top of that organization that you can see great leadership um from the janitor right up through the whole organization. Mm. And the corollary of that is you can see people who are at the top of our organizations and the level of leadership that they um, that they demonstrate, you're kind of wondering how do people actually, how do people get anything done with sometimes with some of the behaviors of some very senior people? I, mm. I notice I don't call them senior leaders because yeah. uh, I think they they step into a type of behavior with, uh, which actually um, it unpicks any uh, any ability that they can have at times. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the function of HR is is going to change in the future? You know, there's a lot of I, I myself working with a lot of managed service partners where corporates are outsourcing or partnering, probably a better word, with with other companies for certain parts of the business. So it's, there's less need for that HR function in that way when you don't have the the scale of people do you think that that's changing things um yeah i mean i i suppose what i think is organizations are changing our 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 sense of what an organization is and a company that you work for is changing from being um you know with this thing and uh, this entity with all these functions etc etc and all these uh, ranges of people and to you know, you've got far more outsourcing, as you've pointed out. You have uh, you have partnerships. You have um, so that those business models have changed. Um, the the HR function, like every other function, has evolved exponentially, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see certain HR services are outsourced, and that will make great sense. Um, but once you've got a certain level of people um, in your organization. Um, or even in your ecosystem, 
I still think that HR can add an awful lot of value understanding what the drivers are and how to capitalize on those. And also in the architecture of your organization, um, if HR people are really understand the business very, very well, they can um, they can really bring a, a different level of value in terms of communicating around what capabilities you need. Yeah. Um, but you've only got to see, and I talked earlier about the idea of um, personnel, you know, HR used to be personnel. Yeah. Um, then it was HR, um, you know, and now it's people and performance. I can't even keep up with some of the, the titles, but at the end of the day, it's, <laughs> yeah. still a, it's still a function that's charged with uh, maximizing uh, and protecting uh, people um, and the value creation that people have in your organization. Yeah. And do you think the virtual world that we find ourselves in, this hybrid working model, is going to pose a lot of challenges in the future? So look, any any seismic change that you have um, will pose some challenges. And look, we had COVID, um, but, you know, leaders adapt, uh, leaders adapted, HR people adapted, brought some support, et cetera, et cetera. Now we've got the whole challenge around return to work. Um, but this hybrid world that you talk about, um, which is, you know, semi-in-person, semi-virtual, which is, I think, what you mean by hybrid. Yeah. Tech firms have been doing that for years. Um, yeah. the, the global pharma companies have been doing that for years and managing that uh, collaboration. Um, and, you know, you and I love to talk about leadership, but, you know, leading in that context is very different to uh, leading in a context where you can press the flesh, which is feels like an expression that we'd never be using again. The <laughs> yeah. idea of shaking somebody's hand or almost being in the same room as somebody is like, uh, yeah. um, you know, it's very alien to us at this stage. Um, so I think that's, uh, I, and I think the hum- our ability to adapt as people is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And the, the last, I've always known it, but I think the last 18 months, that's just really came into stark relief for me. Yeah. So moving on to what you do now with Boyden. So the this whole idea of executive search, which, you know, it's headhunting. That's 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 what people, you know, people love to tell other people, I got headhunted by somebody, you know. But what is headhunting? You know, break it break down the process for us for the the uninitiated in this, people who've never been headhunted before. How do we recognize if we be, if we are being headhunted? Um, you know, what's the process? The first thing about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Uh, well, look, let me, I mean, if I chunk it up a little bit, I make a distinction between recruitment and, and executive search, right? So yeah. um, recruitment is probably more the machine gun approach, right? You'll, uh, and what I mean by that is you'll post an ad, usually, typically, um, and people will apply to that ad. It could be uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, it could be on the job boards, right? And so... In the main, the recruiters are there, they're the passive recipients, or they'll have people that they know, and they're passive recipients of that, um, and people apply. Um, executive search is, is done differently. Um, first and foremost is your there's a retainer involved, so the company will retain you and your services. Um, you'll spend a lot of time more than, say, typically in recruitment, you'll spend a lot of time understanding the, the job in detail. And the nature of the company, mm-hmm. its culture, and the key players in that organization, and how they like to work. Um, 
there's an element of this which is um, there's a scientific element which is making sure that people have the right background and career um, and they've worked in the right roles and they can uh, they've demonstrated track record and um, mm. and evidence of, of skills um, and experiences but there's also a an art form to it which is the um, the matchmaking aspect of it okay where you're looking for fit um, so you'll really understand the headhunter and the search team will really understand uh, the difference yeah. uh, in the firm and the people, um, and they'll spend a lot of time on that. You'll then, um, you then will kind of, you will spend a lot of time writing and articulating that. Um, mm-hmm. And then as opposed to being the recipient of CVs, we go out to the market. So we will go out to the market and we will research the market and we'll go and proactively find people who uh, are not necessarily looking for a job. Yeah. So when you uh, say the market, I mean, the, the, the market is hidden. Like, yeah. I mean, they're not there. There's nobody at that market. You have to yeah. drag them into it, don't you? Yeah. Well, you first of all, you got to find them. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, there are ways that um, researchers go about uh, finding people, right, with certain skills and, and backgrounds, right, either through trade publications. LinkedIn has made this world an awful lot easier. I, w- I would like to point that out. But mm-hmm. they'll go about sort of mapping it out and seeing who are the people doing similar roles in different organizations, um, and they'll target those. And then there's a period of actually extracting those people out for a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if recruitment is passive and you're taking people who are actively looking, Search is very targeted, very focused, and it's about extracting people who are not necessarily looking, uh, but who are likely to be a better fit and who can bring to bear different skill sets, um, more relevant skill sets, so that they can add more value. Is it? Do the majority of people say, oh, no thanks, I'm happy where I am, or do the majority of people like a little bit of flirting and say, oh, tell me yeah. more? Um, with, uh, is it a profession of flirts? Um, <laughs> yeah. The it, it, there's probably no real right or wrong answer that I think normally people will uh, there's an act of curiosity, curiosity, um, yeah. and uh, if people are approached, um, a lot of people will take call and they'll understand the rule. Okay, mm. and depending on where a person is at a given time, they may want to know more. Mm. Um. Obviously, there's other factors like the role, it's suitable, all that sort of stuff. I'm taking that as a given. Yeah. Um, but then people will say, okay, tell me more or whatever. And at this stage, they're dealing with the researchers and the researchers are very, very good at, um, you know, ha- getting a conversation going with a person. Sometimes they'll use it to ask them to refer to somebody else. And that's why the importance, it's very important in your career to manage your brand and manage the, uh, publicly how you're perceived and to really be very responsible around your brand as uh, you as a professional, as a professional, as a manager, as a, as an executive, as a leader. That's mm. really, really important. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's that whole idea that, you know, social proof, if other people say you're good, it's much more yeah. uh, valuable than if you're saying you're good. Yeah, exactly. And then um, after the researcher has qualified people, they'll be, uh, uh, we'll, They'll they'll uh, they'll have an interview. They'll qualify them. They'll understand a lot of their details. We'll be presenting a long list of those people to the client, and then through process of that conversation, you'll narrow that down to a shorter list. 
And and when you say long list, I mean, is it it it, it must be shorter than what you know a normal role could have hundreds of CVs in it. It's not hundreds you're getting in your long list, is it? Um, no, like the so I suppose the three. If I make it very simple, you you'll map the market. Okay, that yeah. that's just names. It might be a high level profile of somebody. You'll then have a long list. You could have 20, 30 names on a long list. Okay. Um, And then, and this is all about zoning in and narrowing in on the uh, the brief that the client wants. Then you you could be talking about taking five or seven people, say seven people for a conversation with the headhunter, if you will. Four or five of those might go for a first uh, interview with the client. Um, And maybe two to three might go to second or final stage interview with a client. And their rules of Tom rather than say those numbers being exactly the same yeah. way each time. It, like it's a it's a it's a bigger investment, obviously, in in yeah. recruitment costs. So, is there a is there a general level with which headhunting or sorry executive search makes sense? And then below that line, no, look, just go the traditional recruitment route. Um, in the main, it's uh, it's been. Uh, it's been more focused on roles, you know, 130, 140K plus, okay? Right. Because the minimum search fee is in around 30K. Yeah, so they have um, to make it worth a while. So, yeah, and they, they, the research piece is time consuming. Occasionally it can, uh, you know, typical roles in Ireland are um, searched in around the one, I think the start point would be about 160 usually. Right, right. okay. Um, the... Um, but occasionally, uh, search will be used for roles below that level, um, where some where a skill is or uh, particular skill sets very hard to get come by. Right, so specialist roles might, yeah, might dictate very, that very, as well. Yeah, very very specialist. Yeah, but yeah. not a whole lot below that level because it's it is um, it is a premium service. Yeah, yeah. What what should I do if I want to get headhunted? Like, so say say if I am a person who's in that zone, I think, oh yeah, I, I'm kind of in that zone. Well, how do you? I mean, you can't get headhunted because well, that's uh, the nature Joe of Rogan's, hunting, isn't it? <laughs> Joe Rogan's group have told me to have a chat with you after this. Okay, oh, brilliant! So. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so, and in that joke, actually, there is a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of the answer to your question, right? Um, so the essence of get headhunted is really about first of all you got to be good at what you do, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know the expression a dumb priest never got a parish, right? Uh, yeah. So you need to be good. You're not not only is it uh, being good at what you do, but you also need to be seen as being good at what you do, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, which means actually profiling yourself. Um, so you know taking the opportunity to look, you'll get you'll get on radars um, by you know, by profiling yourself, but not only just internally in your own organization, yeah. but also by taking the opportunity to speak outside of your own organization, attend events and get known and networked in your industry. Yeah. Your networking is is key. So that um, puts you out there for referrals. People say, oh, have you talked exactly. to Steve Norton? Have you talked it to does. Kevin Keegan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if you think of the, you know, the sources of how we figure out if somebody's good at something, right? It's, uh, uh, you know, social proof. It's, well, yeah, yeah, that guy, Stephen's really good at X, Y, and Z. And you meet somebody else, oh, if you talk to Stephen, he's really good at X, Y, and Z, yeah. or whatever. There's that. Then you see somebody, right? If you see somebody presenting or they're on a panel or whatever, yeah. 
Um, they're putting their head above the parapet. Um, you know, they're some of the more obvious ways. Uh, but one of the um, skills and jobs uh, search firms have and are good at is actually finding people who don't necessarily do that because those sort of things that are quite often the, um, you know, quite often things that the extroverts are, are better at doing. Yeah, I was right? just thinking about yeah. Um, but search firms will be very good at actually finding people uh, who are very, very good and very, very capable that maybe don't do that. Yeah. Um, so, um, but if you wanted a, you know, a way of getting onto the radar, if you will, that's one of the ways of getting, or that's two of the ways to get onto a radar. And, and on the flip side, what goes against somebody when an executive search process is underway and what, what gets people deselected pretty quickly? Um, well, uh, maybe I'll answer that. I'm going to answer that slightly, the question beyond, before that, if you will, which is, look, why might you not even get onto a list, right? Yeah, uh, okay. Which is your, your general reputation. So I mentioned before about protecting your brand. Minding your reputation is really, really important. Mm. Okay. Um, in terms of if, look, there's the standard stuff that you might expect as you're going through a process, you know, just... You know, somebody does an interview for, uh, particularly well, or they, um, you know, the chemistry is in there. Um, but people, uh, candidates can make faux pas as well about, um, you know, not rec- not going through the process um, patiently, uh, yes. maybe having an overly aggressive approach with regard to certainty sometimes. Because um, often uh, executive search can be used in a situation where, you know, there's a very discreet situation. Uh, maybe somebody's in a, a person's in a role and it's not working out, and they want to they want to have started hiring somebody before they let somebody go, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So your ability to manage ambiguity, which is expected as a senior executive, will get um, will very much get tested in the, an executive search process. Yeah. Um, and in generally in recruitment and in uh, in executive search, it's no different. Um, being overly aggressive with regard to salary expectation and things like that can uh, can really put um, clients off very, very quickly. Yeah, I was just thinking that, I mean, obviously if somebody's coming to you, it might make people feel that they're in a very strong negotiating position and they might decide, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make the best of this because it's, you know, it's my opportunity. It's, it's one of the quickest ways that people can increase their annual salary is by moving jobs and this is somebody coming looking for me so why shouldn't I be aggressive in the negotiations they want me don't they yeah look there um I mean if you're leaving a job and you're moving into another job bigger job etc um the you know you would expect to take a bump right but you've got to remember as well that um everybody will have a range within which they're looking to hire and they are hiring somebody that they want to fit in their organization. And if a candidate comes across as particularly difficult or thorny or arrogant, and there's um, money can be a great uh, polarizer for people. Okay. Mm. Um, And it's one that you've just got to be very clever and navigate in a very thoughtful uh, way. Um, and, you know, actually taking your cues off the executive, um, the headhunter in that instance is actually, um, is very valuable because they're, it's in their interest that uh, they place you, right? So actually recognizing those cues and taking the guidance is, is really, really important. 
And if you think of the core skills um, of, of a headhunter, there's a skill in getting somebody to have a conversation with you. There's a skill in understanding what, the, what that person has, mm-hmm. their actual, their skill sets, their capabilities. There's a skill in understanding the, uh, the matchmaker bit, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a skill in helping the candidate navigate a selection process, <laughs> helping your ch- client choose the best person, and then navigating that person to an offer. Mm. They're the core skills. Um, Interesting, yeah. Yeah, it, the, the whole process, you know, for, you know, there might be people who, who haven't realized that that call from somebody is there, is there a chance? I mean, when you get that initial call, what would you recommend people do? You know, what, um, what are the type of questions they should really ask the, the, the researcher from the, the executive search firm? Well, the researcher uh, will have uh, will have a script of information that they'll share at that stage. Um, yeah. I think it's when you get from the uh, so first of all, I'd say be prepared to take the call. There's nothing wrong with uh, listening, right? Mm. We're not cheating, okay? Yeah, yeah. But I'm, and I'm going to say that anyhow. I mean, I have a, a it's not probably <laughs> like I'm impartial here, but there is nothing wrong with actually listening yeah. to an opportunity, right? Um, there's um. So, and it's just asked logical questions. Why is the role vacant? What what are they looking for? You can ask why you've been uh, referred. You may or may not be told. Um, You know, what would success look like in six, 12 months? The general thoughtful questions you would ask in any recruitment process. Um, But then it's important for the candidate to, um, when they're talking to the headhunter and talking to the client, to really zone in on those cues. Because the higher the level of role, the more important the nuance and understanding of the challenges of a culture and to really unpick the leadership challenges uh, that will uh, that go with a role. Yeah. What what are the leadership qualities that headhunters are looking for, you know, uh, in, in a person when, the, when they're going for it? Because obviously, if you're investing that amount of money, you're looking for something special. Yeah, and look, it'll vary. Um, so I, you will look for generic leadership qualities. And I, I hate the word generic leadership qualities because mm. it sounds like they're everywhere and they're not, okay? Yeah. But you're going to look for um, for leaders in general because you're, you're paying, uh, that premium is being paid to find a leader. But then it's a leader in a context, okay? Yeah. So in that context will be the industry that, they're, uh, that you're headhunting in. Um, if if it's the if it's not the CEO if it's a if it's a functional head like a HR or ops or sales it'll be the industry knowledge will be very important so that having that um, that industry leadership will be very very important and then it'll be the so you have the you have general leadership you have leadership in the context of that industry you have leadership in the context of that function and then you've got that added complexity of leadership in the context of that company. Yeah. Um, and A, it's culture, but also what is the leadership challenge in that company? Where is it at in its life cycle? Where is it at in terms of the challenges that it faces? Um, and in reality, uh, one of the things that uh, headhunters are very good at, it's really understanding those nuances and those subtleties and being able to recognize those qualities in candidates and being able to lift those candidates out and get conversations between those people 
and an organization and helping an organization and candidates make that match. Very good. Sticking to leadership. This is the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast. I have to know what what have been your good boss experiences? Who would you put in the good boss category in your career? So uh, you're going to think I'm joking now. I, I probably wouldn't have necessarily, you know, a balance sheet or if you will, or a plus and minus column. And no leader is perfect, right? And I think that's really, really important. I think sometimes we have a binary view of leaders. They're, they're good or they're bad, right? Um, I've had the privilege of working with some great leaders, uh, to be honest with you, um, in my career. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Jim Brown uh, previously. You know, uh, he's a guy that went into Ulster Bank at a very during a very difficult period and right at the bank and brought it back to profitability. I worked with uh, Kerry Group in the earlier years. I was only I only overlapped with Dennis Brosnan for a short time. I had the privilege of working with Stan McCarthy. Um, Edmund Scanlon, who's now the current CEO of Kerry Group. Um, yeah, I learned an awful lot from working with Richard Barrett, actually, um, his uh, his vision um, and the thoughtful way in which he did the business was amazing. Um, one person who uh, I is definitely would stand out in my mind is a, a lady called Susan O'Dwyer, who's the CEO of Make-A-Wish. Um, we often talk about that. You asked me earlier, like about what qualities are leadership or whatever. And um, Susan has, you know, she's really tapped into this noble, noble purpose. So, you know, she um, she leads a charity um, that makes uh, makes um, makes w- wishes for children who are, uh, with life threatening illnesses. And she's done that. She took over leading leading that charity in the middle of the financial crisis. And she's taken it through the charity, that charity through that, and she's taken it. She brought it to um, to uh, real heights there, um, and then and she's still leading it through COVID. Um, but Susan's um, connection to that mission and her optimism and her resilience and her focus is is quite inspiring, to be honest with you. In the bad boss side of things, even though we don't have a balance sheet, we know that now, um, and you're not a you know list off any names in this in this category. But what in particular would switch you off from a boss? Like, I mean, you must have, you know, because you've experienced different industries and you've experienced different countries and you've experienced different uh, you know levels of of uh, you know where you've operated. You must have come across some things that you actually say, actually, that's a deal breaker for me. If a boss behaves like this or if this this is the way they operate, I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, so it's probably it, that, again, is a little bit more nuanced as well, because um, never you know, a straight some, answer. <laughs> um, some people have good and bad days, right? Um the um, and you know, as we come on to this, I think good boss, bad boss, bad boss. Um, I'm sure there's people would have put me on both sides of that uh, of your balance sheet there, Stephen. Um, <laughs> so you know, I think one you've got to be very mindful of your first of all your own your own leadership behaviors and making sure that they don't slip into um, that bad boss category. I think that's really really important and reflecting and being constantly tweaking your own leadership and just being accountable for your own leadership is really, really important. Um, deal breakers for me, uh, we talk a lot about um, being authentic, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, and look, we all love a little bit of banter and uh, a little bit of, um, you know, self-belief and all that sort of stuff, but uh, a lack of humility, 
um, um, would be one. Uh, an inability to face up to the truth, uh, candor. Um, uh, you know, I can handle a lot of things, but if you can't actually have a very real conversation with somebody as to, you know, why uh, um, and put forward your views about a decision that was made or a direction that you're going, if that's not welcome, if you're not being engaged at that level, I find it very hard to want to bring, uh, to give, you know, discretionary effort and and to follow because I have to feel that I, I, I learned the maximum at an early stage of my career, which is people are committed to what they help create. Yeah. Um, and I find it easier to follow a leader who involves me in uh, decision-making um, and who seeks my input. Um, and I'll very much follow that, but I find it harder to follow somebody who just lays down a direction without a great rationale that you don't feel vested in. Um, I just find that harder to deal with uh, as much as anything else. Kevin Keegan, it has been fascinating to talk to you. I've learned uh, so much more about the executive cert world. And uh, one day I might get a phone call <laughs> and uh, somebody from Joe Grogan's crew will be t- talking to me uh, someday soon. Thanks very much for coming on the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast. You've been a brilliant guest. Thanks, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I, I look forward to headhunting you for Joe Rogan. Or, uh... <laughs> Thanks very much, Kevin. Kevin has had such a varied and interesting career and he's able to distill the lessons he has learned so well. If you want to connect with Kevin and the Boyden team, go to www.boyden.com forward slash Ireland. Thank you for listening. It really means a lot. This will be the last episode before we take a short break for the summer. I didn't take one last year, so we're definitely due one. I will keep connecting with new guests and I'll be back in September with some more leadership conversations. If you haven't heard all the conversations yet, all the previous episodes are available on my website www.stephennaughton.com or on whatever platform you are listening to right now. I love getting feedback about which episodes you have really enjoyed, so do contact me and connect. You can find more from me on Instagram at goodbossbadbosspodcast. But that's it for now. Have a great summer and I'll be back next September with another Good Boss, Bad Boss guest. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.